House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And joining us is uh, Burl Bear. And uh, how are you doing today? Oh, just dandy. I'm doing better than my dog. I took the dog to the vet, and she's depressed. Why? She doesn't have to pay the the vet bill. Oh, no, I'm the one who's depressed about that. We don't want to insult her. We call her a Staffordshire Terrier. Her name is Isis, which, of course, is just every time the news comes on, she hides. Yeah. <laughs> not a popular name right now. No, it's not. Isis is evil. Isis is an evil Isis that. When I was a kid, uh, my friend Larry Siegel had a, a, a dog whose name was actually Spot. And uh, we were over there having uh, dinner one night, uh, Sunday night, and the Hallmark Hall of Fame was on. And they had Macbeth. And when Lady Macbeth said, Oh, damn spot, the dog got up and left the room. You've just been a god in the writing world. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> like I just, yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've done a lot of writing because I'm not very athletic, and that's, uh, you know, <laughs> having excuse why I'm not exercising. I have to write. I've read two of your books. And, really? Uh, which, yeah. which student do you uh, I, I, uh, the, the mini book about the Tacoma murder. Robert Henry. Yeah, that's it. And that was the first uh, kind of encounter I had with you. And then um, after that's I... That's a tragic story, that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... Uh, they well, all are. All the reasons... I mean, the people aren't familiar with the story. It was... Uh, well, I wanted to do a book on that one for a long time, and uh, Detective Robert Yerberry was the, uh, the detective on point on that one. I mean, here you have a guy, everything's going his way, he's got a great wife, he's got a great job, everything's wonderful. He's done with work for the day, comes out to the parking lot, and out of the bushes comes a guy dressed all in black, with a shotgun, and a, like a black helmet on, and basically executes this guy right in the parking lot of the office building. Uh, shoots him with a shotgun and takes off on a motorcycle and basically leaves no clues. Mm-hmm. And you can't figure out who would want to kill this nice guy. He didn't have any drug debts, he had gambling debts, he wasn't involved with anything shady. And, uh, oh, his wife just is, uh, of course, is devastated. And... Uh, you know, it was someone he knew, someone who was formerly a good buddy of his. They got into an argument at Christmas, and it was, over what was a better hobby, boats or uh, planes. That's why I killed him. Yeah, I remember that. I thought that was kind of weird. I, it, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> well, I just, you know what I mean. I just didn't think it was enough to be that angry. Yeah. Like, you know, we... Oh, it, the widow and I had a conversation about that, because the... There's an excellent episode of a TV series called Motives and Murders, Cracking the Case on Investigation Discovery. And they did a fantastic, I thought, adaptation uh, for their show. Uh, they interviewed both uh, well, a lot of people. They interviewed the detectives. They interviewed uh, Henry Widow, and they uh, interviewed me. And uh, uh, she and I talked about that. I think if you don't mind me saying so, yeah. all the reasons on earth if there's a valid reason ever to go shoot somebody. The fact that they have a different hobby than you and you got to do an argument about that? You know, it still struck me as it's just... If for me, it couldn't be enough. I couldn't imagine being that upset over what's a better hobby to do, sail or, or fly, and then to actually go to such yeah, trouble. Yeah, the guy is, is uh, obviously, is, I think, the technical service is Bissell Bishuga. The guy, you know, he's a little nuts. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a, an adequate defense for a premeditated murder. He had an alibi, and it took him. So that was the longest investigation in Tacoma Police history. It took him a long time because they they uh, uh, they finally found a murder weapon. But it was years later, found it in the bushes, still found it in the bushes, and they it yeah. took. You know, it's kind of like that. Uh, uh, that movie with uh, uh, Brad Pitt and 8,000 other people that won the Academy Award a few years ago, Babel, or something like that, where uh, this gun makes it all the way around the world, and it's kind of the same thing. 
they had to trace, you know, all the different people who owned that shotgun. And uh, it wasn't easy to do. And turns out it was that guy. And uh, he even, he was harassing the widow for years because they worked in the same company. And he would sit at lunch next to her and, like, make faces and, you know. Yeah, I remember that. That's that's just nuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Normal people, first of all, don't kill people. Uh, second of all, if they were semi-normal and they killed people, they wouldn't do it in a fight over what was a better hobby. You know, yeah, collecting stamps or parcheesi. You know. <laughs> um, well, and maybe. then he has the nerve to, to sue from prison. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Fortunately, oh. they threw that thing out. But, uh, yeah, he's a real piece of work, that guy. Yeah, it's called, that little booklet is called, uh, mini true crime book. Yeah. It's called, uh, Murder on 9-11. That's, that's what happened. It didn't happen the same 9-11 as, you know, 9-11, that New York thing with the terrorists or whatever. Yeah. But it was on that date that, uh, the Robert Edward was murdered. And it was on that same date, was it nine years later or something, that the guy was sent off to prison. And he's in there for life now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's usually what they do. Although sometimes they get less than that, or sometimes they get more. Uh, but I think he's in there for life. It was first degree premeditated murder, you know, he planned ahead of time. That was a story I'd wanted to tell for some time. Another story that I'd wanted to tell for a long time that uh, I finally got the opportunity was a story called The Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. And that's in a, a great uh, book, uh, called Masters of True Crime, and it's a compendium of, of stories by various brilliant and talented true crime writers. Especially <laughs> 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 myself, of course. Uh, that's just uh, uh, another one of those stories that you go, what were these people thinking? You know, the guy gets a package in the mail addressed to his son, and uh, I figured, well, gee, I'll open it in case it's something important, and it blew up. Uh, we found his knuckles on the roof, melted uh, his wife's face who was just you know and uh, you know who would do it why would they do it and the only people who had a motive were already in prison for murder because he testified against them and uh, sure enough that's who did it they had their uh, the one guy's sister uh, build the bomb and she was what just about ready to go into labor she takes her daughter uh, to the post office to mail this bomb to this uh, guy. Wow. Could have blown herself up too, which might have been a nice, nice move. Yeah. But uh, always wanted, that's a real strange story. I always wanted to tell that one. That's one of the few cases, I think maybe the only one in American history, where someone is found guilty and sentenced for a crime they were never charged with. <laughs> Yes, it's, uh, yeah, that's uh Yeah, a lot of people wonder about that. Hey, Aaron Moriarty, who I have a crush on and I often tease, uh, she was on uh, my radio show a couple of years ago, and I she said, that's impossible. You can't convict someone of something they haven't been charged with because you don't have to be able to defend yourself. But, oh, no, American trial. <laughs> they really wanted to convict the guy of something. They asked him if he wanted to convict him of it. They just had to go to principal said, uh, you know, we're going to find him guilty of something. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he was going to go until he was never charged with Wow. Well, there you go. Well, well things are so strange. I mean, we don't have American justice. We have American courts, American laws. But I think uh, Americans are very naive about how things work. But one reason prosecutors uh, get so many convictions uh, is that people plea bargain and make deals because even if they're not guilty, because they're so concerned that if they do go to court, because they're warned, like, listen, if you don't plead out, if you plead not guilty and go to court, uh, it'll be worse for you. You know, they'll find you guilty if they find you guilty, you'll get twice as long as sentence, you'll get this, you'll get that. So why don't you just plead it out? So lots of people in there took a plea deal that, you know, worked or didn't do it. If you the person who didn't do it, still out there somewhere. But that's just so prevalent. Yeah. <laughs> Back in uh, uh, New York under uh, Giuliani, I remember saying that 
what reason uh, he had so many, such a high, uh, you know, rate of uh, uh, convictions or whatever is because he he made people stay in jail until their trials, and then would stretch it out a long period of time, and so people would plead out just to get out of jail. And and so now your um, your big book. My big big in size or uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've got about thirteen thirteen books out there. So yeah. Uh, no, the my big one. biggest book in terms of size <laughs> may be either Love at the Cost of Life, which is a true story, uh, oral history of the persecution of the Baha'i religious minority in Iran at the time of the revolution that came out this year, or it could be The Saint, a complete history in print, radio, television, film that came out uh, before you were born, <laughs> but continues to sell. I remember The Saint, the original. Ah, uh, yes. Famous Simon Templar, the devil with dames, the headache of cops and crooks alike. <laughs> uh, I so, remember. I'm laying here, lying here, lying here. I'm not, yeah, I'm not laying there being egg. I'm lying here on the futon, reclining in supine on my spine, looking up at one, two, three, four saint one sheets from the movies of the saint of New York, the man who's one man, what was it? The man who's, I don't know if my glasses on, there's a man who did something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One Man War on Crime, then we have The Saint Takes Over with George Saunders, Saint Girl Friday, Louis Hayward, and Saint Meets the Tiger, starring Hugh Sinclair, who had large ears and a beautiful voice. So I wrote about the movies, the radio shows, the TV shows. I was able to meet him two weeks to the day before he passed away. Bought me lunch at a little coffee shop in Surrey, and that was a real delight. What made you write the saint? Like, what made you do that? Like, that was. So well, that I could answer very easily. It was, I say so, the introduction I say, this is the book I always wanted to read. I kept going to the library. Remember those? I yeah. kept going to the library. I think it was kind of like bookstores. People haven't seen them in a long time. Although we do have a new library here in uh, Stevenson Ranch. But I go to the library hoping someone had written a comprehensive history of the saint from the. Uh, the very first book of the 1920s up to the uh, whatever was going on right now. I kept looking and looking and finally, uh, well, I thought I was going to write a magazine article for I think video review or video one or two on the same movies that were available on VHS at that time. Well, my crafty, very clever little nephew, Lee Goldberg, uh, who was at uh, several New York Times bestsellers, uh, which added a lot of itch, yeah series with her is doing incredibly well. Uh, he, without me knowing, wrote a proposal for a complete same book and sent it to McFarland Publishers. And uh, I think it was the first Saturday after the 4th of July in 1990, I think, I showed up a moonlight Washington to go finish with my dad, and he said, hey, you got a, a letter, yeah, you know, at the house, home address. And there was a contract for a book do in a year, I got to stretch it out a bit, so uh, thank you, Lee. And that's the book I won the Edgar for, uh, my first book. And the nice thing about winning an Edgar is they can't take it away from you. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what you do. No matter what you do, it's kind of like Aldo Ray won the Academy Award at the end of his career. He was doing porno movies. Yeah. You know, as the doctor saying, don't try this at home. Uh, you know, whatever I write, they just they put it on the front, Edgar Award winner. And it's true, I did win one. I got it to look like a little bust of Hitler. Uh, oh, but it looks like a, you know, it looks like Hitler. Can't tell the difference. People say, why do you have a plaster cast of Hitler on your mantle? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. It's not Hitler. It's that ground ball. <laughs> well, and, and, and your man overboard. Man overboard. The counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne. Now, I drove people crazy when that book first came out 20 years ago. I became known as the King of BSP, which means blatant self-promotion. Uh, I sold that book like it was a Benjamin salesman at a county fair. And people weren't always happy with that technique, but I did sell a lot of books. Uh, now, 20 years later, uh, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit of Resurrection of Phil Champagne, is back with uh, a new introduction, a uh, couple new paragraphs, new ending, new pictures, uh, it is a true story, I guess, unless it's a pack of lies. 
And if it is a packable eyes, then these lies are well packaged. Here's the basic premise of the book. You ready, Alan? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, brace yourself. I am. 1982. Was it 1982? I think so. Oregon <laughs> businessman Phil Champagne dies of a tragic boating accident off Lopez Island, Washington. He is survived by one ex-wife, four adult children, an octogenarian mother, and two despondent brothers. Phil didn't know he was dead until he read it in the newspaper. All things considered, he did it rather well. Ten years later, 1992, Washington State restaurateur Harold Stegman, famous for his big juicy steaks, is arrested by the United States Secret Service for putting counterfeit $100 bills on a tiny shed in Idaho. In addition to the bogus bills, Stegman also has a fraudulently obtained United States passport, a fabricated Cayman Islands driver's license, and Phil Champagne's fingerprints. Yes, it's a story of fraud, deception, trickery, lies, and fine primary. And probably one of the... Uh, the few true crime books that's actually amusing, vastly amusing, hysterically funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what they said when they read it. Maybe I didn't intend it to be that funny, but they said it was funny. So. Well, it did kind of come out that way, you know, when yeah. I was reading. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, did you ever get to meet him personally? Oh, yes. Uh, Phil's 84 years old. I talked to him just the other day. And uh, what a charming gentleman. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I first met Phil, I think Ann Rule was going to do it originally, because uh, she knows the family. Her daughter and Phil's daughter are good friends. But she was tied up on other projects. Somehow I got recommended and suggested. We got a phone call from uh, Buck Wormsby, you know, famous bass player up there in Seattle. Yeah. And uh, he faxed me all the information. And uh, Phil at that time was in the federal prison uh in Spokane by Spokane, Washington. Well, I was living in Walla Walla, which is, uh, what, 147 miles. So I jumped in my Volvo 1800 State Mobile and drove up there. And uh, Phil had already had some other obvious approach about a book, because this had made the news, and all the talk shows wanted him by Phil Williams, and, you know. Yeah. I went to somebody's father, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I went in there and... Uh, I didn't go in and say, hi, I'm Burl Bear, and I want to write a book about Cubans, they should be comedy criminal. <laughs> Instead, I, I went in and I uh, got a cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup, sat down, uh, oh, and uh, sat down opposite him and said, uh, how good were the bills, Phil? And he started bragging about how good the bills were, that the bills made it uh, all the way to uh, Federal Reserve Bank, uh, in Seattle before they were detected. Well, we just kind of got off in a big conversation about counterfeiting and uh, why did he swap the money out differently than he did. They say, you know, we were doing a book. Yeah, and he's been at your book signing, hasn't he, or something? Oh, that, that's one of uh, GM Ford's writer. <laughs> Great guy. He just cracked him up. Is I took uh, to, to some signings so you could get the true crime book not only signed by the true crime author, but by the true criminal. <laughs> <laughs> and by the criminal's wife. So I had to know that uh, uh, the Clintons, uh, former President Clinton and former First Lady Hillary Clinton, have a copy of Man Overboard of their uh, ex-presidential library, I guess you call it, yeah. uh, signed by Burrell and by Phil and by uh, Barb Fraley, who is uh, Phil's wife, who... Didn't know who she was married. Didn't know if she was married to Harold or Phil or what it was. Yeah, that's quite a story. Um, so, for the people that don't know, let's let's run through the story. Uh, how did it all start? Well, you know, here was Phil. He's a uh, he was what uh, fifty some years old. You know, he's working uh, in a construction business. His brother, you know, he have a, a company, and of course, his key man insurance on Phil in case something should happen. But everything is just pretty much going to hell in a cosmic handbasket. There's problems on the construction site. If you remember in the uh, in the 80s, if you were around then, the interest rates on loans for building a home were just you know, through the roof. Could no one could afford it. Yeah. He was going through a bad divorce, and to cheer him up, his brothers took him out on a 
a little, you know, treat. Let's go, uh, let's go sailing. Let's go up to the Great Pacific going West where we already are, but let's go farther up and go drinking and fishing and, you know, we'll get some sunshine. And well, fine, except Phil got a little bit drunk, just to have his deck shoes on, and they're out there in the, uh, off uh, Lopez Island, and Phil falls overboard. And the Coast Guard searched for his body for 13 hours, didn't find him. That's because he was rescued by an illegal fisherman who couldn't exactly take him to the hospital and say where they found him. Right. All Phil had was hypothermia. The guy lets him stay there a couple of days, please. He goes back on his feet, drops him off at Anacortes. Well, that's when Phil reads the paper that he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, it's a heck of a deal. You know. I realized it, did you stop and think? He goes, yeah. They go, well, I could go down the door. Honey, I'm not dead. You keep suing me for divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but everyone thinks he's dead. Now, nowadays you couldn't get away with what Phil did, but back then you could. You could make fake driver's license, fake IDs with a letter set kit. You could, you know, no one in Washington with a Rhode Island driver's license look like you could make it up. You know, they yeah. have holograms on it or anything like that. <laughs> you don't know, just make yourself a new ID, new driver's license. Who knew? Yeah. So he, uh, he reinvents himself. Excuse me. And uh, goes to Mexico, gets involved in all sorts of amazing adventures, goes to Florida. He's whining and dying. He's uh, got women uh, by the handful, got a sack by quarter with the quarter of the room because he was a good looking guy. And uh, he was useful to have around the house. Well, uh, he winds up uh, getting involved in all sorts of stuff uh, that he's a criminal, but. Uh, uh, I don't want to give away the whole plot, but he winds up with the drug smugglers and criminals out to kill him, and uh, he finally gets the best on them. Out of five, seven goes back to Washington with a new name and a whole bunch of money. However, slight error on Phil's part. The name he chose, Harold Richard Stegman, he got the name off the graveyard in Florida of someone who was born but didn't live to adulthood who died as a child. Right. And uh, what he didn't know is that organized crime had used that same graveyard a long time ago. And that name, Harold Richard Stegman, is well known around the world, like Kaiser Sose. So many people have <laughs> used the name. Then a minority leader of New Jersey, uh, famous case at the moment, used that same name on his passport when he faked his death in the Bahamas and then uh, flew to the Maldives Islands. The, uh, the feds actually arrested uh, uh, Phil, who he was Harold Zegman, thinking they had an international criminal, they had photographs, they showed him a guy on it, they couldn't see his face, the guy leading a revolution in Africa on a tank, that's Harold Zegman. Smuggling guns, Harold Stegman. Human trafficking, Harold Stegman. Diamond smuggling, Harold Stegman. They think that they have got the <laughs> biggest criminal in the history of the universe. His fingerprints didn't match anything. He didn't, you know, they, he had no criminal record. But the name, Harold Stegman, boy, did they get a print out on that name. So he was able to cut a deal. Gentlemen, I'll tell you everything about my last criminal empire. <laughs> <laughs> you give me the lowest possible sentence of the counterfeiting. So they cut a deal. They tell him everything about his vast criminal empire. In return, he gets uh, you know, a work release, 18 months, grabbing a phony passport, conspiracy to counterfeit. And the uh, first question they answered was, what kind of coffee camera did you use to take the picture of the 
And then he hand colored all the bills with one of those little hobby paint sets. Still low tech. But they got the deal we had on or well, days were simpler back then. You know, from all the true crime books I read, I read a lot. The only one nominated for an award was nominated for an Anthony Award for Best True Crime at the World History Convention. Anna Rules that uh, Dead by Sunset was nominated uh, that same year. She says, oh, girl, I know you're going to win. I said, no, Anne, you're going to win. I was right. She won. But what's uh, interesting is that she shows up in my book, Man Overboard, because... Uh, her family and Phil's family were friends. And my family shows up in her book, Dead by Sunset, because uh, the victim worked for my brother's law firm. And in fact, the, uh, the killer who was talking about he took photographs of my, my brother and my wife and kids that are hanging on the wall of his home. <laughs> so, uh, true crime is a small world. Yeah, certainly is. And, and that, um, do you think that like Phil Champagne or whatever his name, Harold. Uh, yeah, Phil Champagne, that's his real name, yeah. And his brother got, uh, a, um, you know... $600,000, yeah. Right. So now they seem to go keep going after him and uh, thinking that... Well, it was yeah. In fact, they went after me. Uh, when the book came out, uh, Federal Kemper Life Insurance Company was uh, being filled with a lie. They paid out... Originally, the policy was $1.5 billion. They paid Phil's brother a half of that because the body wasn't recovered and the circumstances of Phil's death. Well, when Phil showed up alive and, and counterfeiting under a different name years later, Federal Kempers uh, went after Mitch, the champagne, Phil's brother, mm-hmm. saying they wanted their 600000 back. Well, they thought maybe uh, some money was coming uh, to Phil from the book. You know, maybe he had a contract with the publisher. So they tried to put... a. Uh, like a garnishment or a freeze or something on money from my publisher at that time to fill. Because the publisher wouldn't fill fill champagne if he passed the counterfeit bill. They just had a contract with me. <laughs> Long story short, uh, uh, for some legal reason, uh, which are probably too complicated to go into, they dropped the whole thing and let uh, just let it go. So... Yeah. I don't care if it's at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do they think that they, the brother was in on it? Well, they thought maybe it was uh, that Phil faked his death, that it was a plot between the brothers. If so, it was a fairly clever one. Uh, Phil's uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, who was working divorce with, uh, sued the other brother for Phil's wrongful death. He collected 150000 uh, It's kind of like everyone benefited from this somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if it was a scam, it was well done. Yeah. Uh, if, well, you know, Phil, of course, said, uh, no, I didn't fake my death. I simply didn't contradict it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, the, uh, uh, when Phil showed up, uh, when they finally figured out who he was, he never did tell them. Uh, FBI could not figure out who he was. Interpol couldn't figure it out. CIA, none of them could figure it out. Because he had no criminal record, so his fingerprints didn't match anything. Uh, Lyle Workman, who was the Secret Service agent on this case, who really liked Phil, by the way, <laughs> uh, just on the most bizarre hunch, walks into the Spokane, Washington Police Department with the fingerprints, says, Will you run these, please? And they got a match. And the only reason for that was due to an, an error. When Phil was 19 years old, he was 63 at the time of his arrest, when he was 19 years old, he got in trouble for taking a car without permission. And that should have been expunged from his record, you know, decades and decades ago. But for some reason, it was still in the Spokane, Washington system. They said, oh, these are the fingerprints of Philip Wendell Champagne. Well, what's his criminal record? He doesn't have one. <laughs> oh. it was 19, we yeah. Wow. That's, That's quite a life. Right. Yeah, what a life. Now he's 84, he's got all these grandkids, and still good looking, still handsome and charming. He has the new book, has pictures of him with some Vegas showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well. Yeah. Uh, do 
whatever. <laughs> Do it while you can, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was funny, you know. There was a lot of, there was a lot of interest in making it into a movie. I wish somebody would, or a TV movie. And I was meeting this one uh, uh, director, producer guy. He says, uh, would it fill mind if we made some changes in the story, perhaps make his, his wife's brother a detective who's working on the case, you know, just some yeah. typical yeah. I said, but the truth is, if I may quote Phil, I don't give a damn if they make me a cartoon mouse as long as they write me a check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like so that. I guess Dr. Gerald said, if you sell a story or a book to Hollywood, you go to the California border, and you toss a manuscript over the border, lands there, and they pick it up, they throw you a suitcase of money. You take the suitcase, you put the trunk in your car, you drive away, and you don't look back. You can't be married to it because, I mean, how yeah. did you see Burglar based on the uh, uh, Lawrence Block's great uh, series about the, you know, the, the guy who runs the, uh, the older guy in the 50s, he's retired burglar, but he winds up being a burglar again, even though Oh, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg played in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't exactly what I had. My was like any person who wanted to play the same, I guess they're good, but I don't know. Yeah. But um, they change everything. Sometimes it works out. Uh, Gone But Not Forgotten, an incredible book, uh, was made with TV movie with Blue Diamond Phillips. And the people who are male in the book or female in the TV movie and vice versa. But sometimes that works there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, also, you have to mention that in Man Overboard, didn't uh, you've got an, a brand new afterwards in there by Phil as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Phil uh, wrote the afterwards, and I wrote a new, new introduction, explaining some things. You know, and, uh, when the book first came out, there was a big front page article in the Quarterly uh, uh, Idaho newspaper with a big picture of Phil and who he really was, and you know about the book and. Oh, then some lady saw Phil on the street, and she just lit into him. You are a horrible person. You're this, you're that. And she's just reading him the riot act. <laughs> he stands there and lets his suit all at once. She's all finally runs out of steam. He just looks at her and says, I bet your husband wishes he could fall off a sailboat. Which is probably quite true. That's just a, you know, that's a, an amazing story, actually. Quite. Well, it's available in a brand new 20th anniversary special edition. The bonus features, just, just like the Criterion DVD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and call it's now. Wildbluepress.com. Yeah, wild you can get it direct from them. You can get it from uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Libras, Books A Million. Walk into a bookstore and demand it. Demand. Uh, Don't leave. I want, I, I'm demand. I want to demand this book. By <laughs> uh, Burl Bear, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit of Resurrection of Phil Champagne. It's got a cool cover. The subject tonight, true crime. Guest, Burl Bear. We'll be back right after these words. I was talking to Lee, Lee Mahler and then... Uh, oh, yeah. And yeah, uh, Serial Killer Quarterly. Every serial killer's favorite quarterly magazine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is... You know, it sounds, it sounds when you hear the name Serial Killer Quarterly, you think, oh, come on. But when you see the thing, it is one absolutely gorgeous, professional, top-of-the-line magazine with, you know, maybe my article exception, but everybody else's articles are really, really good and scholarly <laughs> and well-illustrated. I mean, it is one heck of a good, I'd say better than good, excellent magazine by any standards. Yeah, yeah. So if you're interested in serial killers or that kind of stuff, yeah, uh, yeah, I've been going through it. There's some great stories. He's a great editor, actually. He does a really good job. He's fabulous. Yeah, and he's really—I almost said he's really into necrophilia, <laughs> but he really studies it. Uh, not that he watches it before him necessarily, but yeah. he's researching that. <laughs> well, well, I'm leaving For that one. Woody Allen's former wife. Yeah. Uh, was was uh, uh, raped, I think, in New York at one time. He got in trouble because the, they went to the reporters and said, what is comment about your ex-wife being violated? He said, knowing her wasn't a moving violation. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't like to joke, folks. I just tell them. Yeah. Yeah. Don't take it personal. Yeah. Now, um, on that one, now, did you 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 did a little story on the Yorkshire Ripper? Yeah, I did. I was the Yorkshire Ripper, Yorkshire Ripoff. This yeah. Peter Sutcliffe, uh, he's a copycat. He, he didn't do most of them. Uh, I know a lot of some people think Dean Logara, who wrote the book about the real Yorkshire Ripper, is a little bit over the top. But I'll tell you something. Uh, his research is, is pretty darn good. He has some things theoretically that have already been proven and some that have been disproven. But from based on my horrifying number of years as a human being on the planet, uh, once you've been marginalized when you're when you're right, it uh, creates a, a, almost a a panic desperation. I don't know if you can follow what I'm saying, but if yeah. you've ever been marginalized and uh, told that, that people say, well, you can't believe what he says, he's nuts, but you're actually right about something, and people are, like, automatically discounting you, it makes you almost start grasping at straws just to get back to your basic point. So uh, it gets a little worked up in some areas where he, he needn't be, except for the fact that people have picked on him about this. Uh, but... I do believe he's absolutely correct that the fellow that they're calling the Yorkshire Ripper is a copycat. The cops fed him a lot of the information because some stuff he had did wrong, pardon the pun. And that, uh, yes, he did kill people. Uh, yeah, I think he killed about, about four of the 13. But who killed the rest of them? And uh, that's a different story altogether. Right. But uh, so I, I uh, had a great time writing the article, and I was really blown away when I saw what a great job Lee did uh, as far as editing and illustrating and you know framing the story. So, right. uh, well, that's what, out the paperback too. It's kind of like you know the serial uh, killer quarterly's greatest hits or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why was there such a big stir about that at, with Nolgera? Like why? Why did people jump on him so much? I, I'm sort of surprised. Uh, they do that. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. There's some nasty ones so, out there, but I just uh, it just sort of surprised me because I thought what he wrote was quite good. Yeah, so did I. Uh, but there are people who, I mean, it's not like uh, people will start taking sides in cases and things like that and get all worked up. Uh, I think actually he's he's quite accurate, correct uh, on the majority of, of uh, what he says. Uh, you know, the one that no one pays any attention to and totally discounts on a different topic, yeah. and that is on Jack the Ripper, the uh, the book Hand of a Woman. And uh, I don't know how accurate it was, but I thought the book was absolutely fascinating. Uh, on uh, that uh, Jack the Ripper was a woman, and who the woman was. And uh, also at the mental institution, and it doesn't suggest that he got away with it, but, uh, you know, yeah. that's who she was and why she did it. That was a really interesting uh, uh, concept, whether it's true or not. And we won't know. Yeah. I didn't even hear about uh, that one. I checked that one. It's called Hand of a Woman. Huh, I will. Because, uh, yeah. yeah, I interviewed uh, Russell Edward last year, um, you know, naming Jack the Ripper, and. Tom, well, then there's also, uh, Tom Westcott. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's the other one. I mean, I've met him a few times about uh, uh, the handwriting and the blood samples. Was his great grandfather Jack the Ripper? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can get them all together in one room. Oh, uh, like I read the uh, about the, uh, the mental institution where the three guys all thought they were Jesus, so they put them all in a room together to see what would happen. <laughs> The way they me to wash each other's feet, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was an interesting experiment. I bet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I found that to be an interesting subject, but, uh, I, you know, so long ago. I don't even know, why are people still, cer why do they pick certain serial crimes and stick with them? Like Jack the Ripper or Zodiac and oh, things like that. Oh, because it gives them something to do in their spare time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but what what picks them out separately then? Because uh, there's been some real um, other horrific ones that really get no attention. Oh yeah, well that one I think is atmospheric because it's like a TV show or a movie. 
Yeah. You know? Right. It's kind of like, I find this bizarrely related somehow. Uh, people who are, shall we say, beyond the pale of religious fundamentalism to where it becomes almost pathological. They'll be talking, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And no, it doesn't, but what they're talking about is uh, Dante's Inferno. You know, yeah. they're talking about, you know, poems they never read or heard about, you know, or things they've seen in movies. And it's like, no, that's, no, that's for the exorcist. No, that's from God with the wind. No, that, no, where, where, where are they coming up with this stuff? Yeah, you know? yeah, I know. And, uh, and the people just get hooked in, in the things in their imagination runs wild and they just get uh well I I, I didn't know quite how to break this to uh, uh Rhonda Glover who is the murderess in my book Fatal Beauty. I went to see her in prison and uh plexiglass, you know, between us so she could kill me if she wanted to. <laughs> uh, I think when the book came out she wanted to. But yeah. before that she's uh she was not she should be in a mental institution. Uh you know, it had been done. The only reason they declared her competence to stand trial is they said, just don't mention the caves and the clones, because the reason she killed her boyfriend is she believed that he and George W. Bush were having homosexual sex with clones in the cave under her house in Austin. Yeah, and what's the problem? Well, the, because George didn't get an invitation. Oh. <laughs> You're not going to start without me again. Yeah. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, one of the reasons that she thought she was on this mission from God to uh, kill her boyfriend was because she, of uh, Oaks, she lived on Oak Drive in River Oaks, near, you know, Oak Park, you know, everything was Oak, 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 Oak. And she said, you know, in the, uh, the Bible it says, my uh, Oaks are this, but I said, so I, I knew a little bit about the topic, and I said, oh, you this is the King James Version, aren't you? Actually, the, uh, it's tabernacle. There's a lot of, it's a tabernacle. It's a very scruffy, ugly looking bush. Not like George. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is where you get, uh, his turpentine. I said, but they don't have tabernacles in England, so when, uh, uh, they did, uh, this, you know, the King James Version, they changed it to Oak, because people knew what Oaks were. <laughs> I said, but actually, it's, in the original Hebrew, it's a tabernacle, not an Oak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the big, you know, motivations of her killing the guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. What? Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Um, so, where do you see yourself going next? Like, what's, what's, what's the big uh, thing next? Um, boy, I'm working on, uh, it's almost ready to go to uh, Wild Blue to be published. Doing a book with uh, famed journalist Frank uh, Gerardo. Doesn't have a title, because if we give it the original title, it's a murder mystery, you don't know right away. It's a true crime story, but we're not necessarily framing it by telling you this is who did it, you know. Okay. I'll tell you, and you won't tell anybody. No. No. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a horrifying true story of a real nice guy who winds up very, very dead on his bedroom floor, and uh, his wife is upset, his stepdaughter is upset. They uh, do the autopsy on the guy, and they find something very peculiar. There's no reason for him to be dead. He's too healthy to be dead. Guy's in perfect health, except for one thing. He's dead. Dead. Yeah. So that question is, usually they can figure out why a person's dead, you know, within 24 hours of them dying of the dude's complete autopsy and coroner. But they've got this body sitting there for like months trying to figure out why is this guy dead? And his wife, meanwhile, is on the phone with the cops going, I think he was murdered by this uh, this guy who, uh, who we had a grudge against him for work, kind of like Joseph Barbara Henry thing. And so what's the story of uh, the husband, the wife, the investigation, 
and finally the capture of the killer who caught themselves, the killer uh, and put themselves into the investigation and, and solved the crime for the police. <laughs> <laughs> it is really a bizarre story, but it's pretty fascinating. And we're just uh, putting the finishing touches on it to send it off to uh, Wild Blue, which will agree to publish it. Um, and then following that, I've got a new state novel that's almost done. It was supposed to have been done about three years ago. But uh, it's almost done. And then uh, doing a book on uh, a case that uh, you should probably have on your show if you haven't already, the IRP-6. Uh, six uh, guys from computer company uh, charged with a non-existent crime and sent seven to fourteen years in uh, in prison, and no one can quite figure out what they were arrested for or why. Uh, and it's pretty. That's also a really fascinating case because there's homeland security is involved and the anti-terrorism people and the FBI and. Uh, it's uh, the only real danger from that case is I've had some other people warn me to say, well, if you're doing something, you're exposing some degree of corruption or whatever at the high levels of our federal government, like if it was Homeland Security or showing how stupid they are or whatever, yeah. uh, it may cause you personal problems, like they did with the guy who wrote Dark Alliance, you know, right. about how the the cocaine that they were selling in Los Angeles was coming from our white federal government to finance the, the Contras. Yeah. Yeah, I had uh, Ricky Ross, uh, a great guy, Freeway Ricky, who was selling millions of dollars worth of crack and cocaine, didn't realize it was coming from Oliver North, our great patriotic American. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of all that? Do you just think that it just goes on, that, that kind of corruption? Oh, constantly. Yeah. Oh, constantly. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that uh, we're, and I we're just writing a uh, uh, an article. Well, some of you will see. It's actually a Derek Kamenoki who does Deadly Sin TV show. Right. Yeah. Uh, he's doing a, a seminar for uh, with a company called AcademicAddictions.com. They do uh, teaching seminars. You get credit for them and everything. The educational stuff. <laughs> and he's doing one on uh, uh, the history of uh, drug laws in America and uh, alternative sentencing, you know, court diversion where you have drug courts instead of, you know. And every major drug legislation in America has been the result of what's called a moral panic. And that's where you either create a crisis that doesn't exist, or you take something that isn't a crisis and you make it one just long enough to get law passed, and then suddenly it disappears from everyone's consciousness. All the Scary stories stop, and you move on to the next. And what they always do is pick a minority that uses that particular drug. For example, the very first one was uh, opium dens. There was all this Chinese prejudice. You know, Chinese are stealing our jobs. They built the railroads, but now we've got to get rid of those planty-eyed bastards. <laughs> and so they uh, suddenly there's an opium den epidemic. We've got to close down those opium deaths. Well, the only people using opium deaths were the Chinese, so it's just pretty much targeting them. So basically, they had like Chinese laws, and then they got the Chinese inclusion law, where the Chinese couldn't become citizens, all that stuff. Then, yeah, during the Mexican Revolution, we had a lot of Mexican immigrants coming to America to get away from the revolution. Well, they're stealing our jobs and taking our women, so what drug do they do? Oh, they do marijuana. Okay, we'll make marijuana illegal, so we can put a lot of Mexicans in prison. Next thing you know, there's all these fake stories coming out about uh, Negroes on cocaine raping white women. <laughs> Even though there's been the Pure Food and Drug Act and the importation of coca has gone down by over 50%. But what was the most famous uh, moral panic was the one about crack babies. Remember, remember that one? How these, uh, all these kids born on crack with no souls will have an endless army of mutant teenage turtles or something <laughs> roaming our streets with guns and of course none of that was true in fact uh, during the whole drug panic of the 80s if you look at the actual 
federal figures because they do keep track of this stuff despite what you heard yeah. in the news. <laughs> uh, drug use was actually down in the 80s for the previous decade. Yeah. You know, there wasn't everybody that thinks of crack babies, but it did get legislation. Legislation would put more and more people in prison, which is a business to get to itself. Yeah, yeah, that's a business itself. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the reasons for the, the uh, bringing crack into L.A. was to make sure there was a criminal underclass that could be continually put in prison. So what do you think is going to happen now with pot kind of going more the legal way? Uh, well, I've already seen some interesting propaganda. Uh, just came out from what law enforcement body it was. It's because pot is now legal in you know, several states or decriminalized in some as well. This has really hurt the drug cartels, which you think that would be good, right? Yeah. Oh, no, because they're not making all that money off of pot, they are flooding the streets. Have you seen things flooding the streets? That means it's BS. Yeah. Flooding the streets with, uh, <laughs> with methamphetamine. People get all upset. <gasps> we better make pot illegal again so we won't flood the streets with methamphetamines. First of all, the cartels don't even deal with methamphetamines. You can make that at Walmart. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you don't need to be in the Andes uh, you know, to grow it. <laughs> so, yeah. maybe, like, oh, come on. Yeah. Here's a real clue for you. Anytime you see the word epidemic used, and it's not referring to smallpox or typhoid fever or any other real communicable physical disease, that means someone's working a moral panic. Because anytime you take a social issue and use epidemic, it means two things. One, you don't have to deal with the social issue or whatever the social problem is. And two, someone has to carry that epidemic disease. That makes it them and us. If it's an epidemic of what? Oh, gee, uh, who uses this? If they're talking about a heroin epidemic, uh, that must be those heroin addicts. Let's lock them all up or shoot them or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or if it's uh, blacks in the inner city with crack, oh, yeah, so let's make send, uh, the drug send the prison sentencing for people doing crack 100 times greater than people doing powder and arrest a lot of black people. Uh, you know, there's always some legislative motive or groups that want federal funding because they can treat the problem, right? They yeah. people that are lobbying for pieces of the money. There was just a study done, uh, when I was researching this, on methamphetamine laws and who frames them, who frames the problem, and that uh, it's mostly law enforcement. Law enforcement frames the problem, that necessarily creates it or invents it or whatever, uh, and then gets legislation passed, and then gets funding to fight the problem that probably wasn't there to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading articles about the the, uh, the meth epidemic when, in reality, methamphetamine use in America peaked about 20 years ago. Scott Bond, Dr. Scott Bond, has written some excellent books. I don't know if he's been on the show. He wrote a book about why we love serial killers. And he writes for Psychology Today. And he teaches a class on uh, deviant behavior. <laughs> I haven't brought me in as a specimen yet. Uh, he wrote a great book called uh, uh, Mass Deception, uh, Moral Panic and the Iraq War. And he studied uh, all the, uh, the, the build-up to our base of Iraq in the structure of moral panic and how it was orchestrated. The words that are used that are like buzzwords that you always use in a moral panic. You identify things as evil or people as evil because the only way to deal with evil is kill it. You know, you can't negotiate with it. So you have your axis of evil, you have this evil empire, <laughs> whatever it is. How do people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, I've got a page on Facebook, several pages actually. And uh, I do a radio show called True Crime Uncensored. It's on outlawradiousa.com every Saturday at 2 o'clock. My uh, email, I have two actually. Adora Burl, how do you like that? A-D-O-R-A. B-U-R-L, Adora Burl, at gmail.com, or Burl at BurlBearer.net, B-A-R-E-R. Also, I have a website, BurlBearer.net. It's got a charming picture, man. And uh, you can go on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and 
type in Merle Bear, and they'll say, wow, you can buy all sorts of books. Just tons. Yeah. It's the goddess. Buy all of them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have several true crime books from Kensington Publishing, Body Cow, Murder in the Family, which is my New York Times bestseller for them. Headshot. Ran ran out of books on that. But uh, that was the first book I did for Kensington, Murder in the Family. About the Kirby Anthony who raped and murdered his own aunt and her two little girls. And uh, Mom's Dead Kill, which has been done about three, four times on TV, on these shows that investigation discovered. Yeah. And that's the uh, the mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder uh, her employer. Uh, I'll tell you right now, the kid never got the dirt bike. Oh. Sounds like a perfectly good mother. What was wrong with that? Yeah, yeah mother of the year. <laughs> uh, yeah, working as caregiver for this uh, lady with Alzheimer's and uh, the son who was dying of cancer was devoting himself to his mother instead of himself and they were taking care of the mother but the guy had 40 grand in the bank and Barbara Opal decides she wants that 40 grand so she gets her 14 year old daughter to get a bunch of kids together to murder the guy for the money as long as she gives them something for it I think it was good well yeah she probably could get a group bike yeah, well, <laughs> make them work for it. That's responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, teach them a good work ethic. You know, yeah. that bike, you gotta kill Jerry. Yeah, you gotta do some or work. Yeah, yeah, they did kill Jerry. Yeah, do it right. <laughs> and then Fatal Beauty about the, you know Rhonda Glover who killed her boyfriend because he was having sex with George Bush in a cave, and uh, well, <laughs> body count through story of the Spokane serial killer Robert Lee Gates. And uh, see what a little headshot. Uh, yeah. That's uh, two and a half psychopaths, uh, <laughs> three <laughs> trials. That is really most bizarre case. I mean, that that really is over the top. I mean, the, Andrew Webb kills the guy, slashes his throat because he doesn't want to get in trouble. He got in more trouble for killing the guy. <laughs> and then his buddy shoots the guy in the head for no reason. The bury him and then he thinks gee if they ever find that body they'll find the bullet in his head they can trace it to my gun so he goes up and tries to take the bullet out of the guy's head can't find it so he cuts the head off puts it in a bucket of concrete and throws the bucket in the Puyallup River but when they find the the bucket and they put it together with the body I mean the head out of the bucket the guy didn't die from getting shot in the head the bullet went through his cheek and out the other side all he did was break his jaw and knock him out Apparently he came to just as they were about to bury him, and being that already decided to bury him, they stabbed him 17 times. That's a real strange case. Uh, yeah, there were three trials, one mistrial, and appealed to the state Supreme Court on that one. Wow. That the prosecutor said, of the three guys who were charged, the first one through the door gets the deal, <laughs> which is every go, of course. <laughs> and the first one through the door was uh, Andrew Webb, Testify, promised to testify against the other two guys, gets up on the stand and says, tells the truth. says, I killed them all by myself. I only said that to get my deal of no death penalty and life sentence without, you know, with parole. He's out now, as a matter of fact. The two remaining living guys got out of prison and went to their high school reunion. Well, it's been a pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure talking about horrific crimes. Yeah. Or even amusing ones, such as the one by Phil Champagne. Well, yeah, that's a, that's quite unique. But, uh, yeah, well, the latest thing we, I, I threw up, the latest thing I put up on uh, available is uh, another Deadly Sins tie in uh, called Deadly Sins uh, Jealousy, Sex, and Homicide in Los Gatos, California. And that's a little mini true crime uh, story. Uh, there's a, a case on Deadly Sins that was on recently. Oh. But one gorgeous woman and two guys both have a sex with her. One gets jealous and decides to hire a hitman to kill the other guy. The hitman he hired was so stupid, they left map quest directions from their house to the crime scene and the crime scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could have just left autographed by Kid Glossy to themselves. But the yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a world of crime. It's getting smarter. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 